This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. It's a great honor, great pleasure to introduce Richard Allen, professor and chair of, uh, in the Department of Cinema Studies at NYU. His lecture today will serve as the opening salvo for a series of events which constitute today's symposium organized uh, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Hitchcock's masterpiece, Vertigo, a film which, according to many, is one of the greatest films of all time. This symposium, I would like to point out, as, you, as I hope you will see over the course of the day, if you stay, as, I, as I'm sure you will, for all the events, uh, is envisioned, it, was, it has been envisioned since the beginning as uh, a series of events about and around Vertigo by which I mean an opportunity to explore, yet again, the seemingly uh, infinite depths of this film, but also an occasion to explore, to engage in discussion, not only about what else, can we, what else is there to say about Vertigo, the film, but also what is it that this film has been able to tell us about ourselves and how is it that it has impacted us in, uh, let's say, extra cinematic circumstances outside the theater, in the social, political, cultural spheres, in the sphere of ideas and thinking? Uh, as I said, it's a great pleasure to be able to reintroduce Richard. Uh, here with us is, if not the foremost, then certainly one of the foremost uh, contemporary scholars of uh, Hitchcock, a great central, seminal figure in a field or a sub-discipline referred to often as simply Hitchcock studies, which uh, has had a very long and very interesting, very rich history ever since the 50s, the 60s, with uh, film critics gathered around uh, the legendary journal Cahiers de Cinema, Claude Chabrol, Eric Romer, Jean Duchet, others. Uh, then came another generation, uh, still very active, critics like and theorists like Raymond Velour, like Laura Mulvey, Peter Wallen, and I know Richard will appreciate this, perhaps most importantly, Robin Wood. And then we have the contemporary generation of scholars, people like Slavoj Žižek and Richard himself. Uh, I think Richard's, as I said, seminal presence in contemporary scholarship on Hitchcock manifests itself in two central ways. First, through his scholarship, which is incredibly rich. He has published many essays on Hitchcock, uh, two edited volumes on Hitchcock's films, and recently a really excellent book called Hitchcock's Romantic Irony, which does a great job on two really important fronts. On the one hand, it offers a really thorough critical synthesis of uh, the existing discourses about Alfred Hitchcock, while at the same time, it offers a lot of new insight, a lot of new original ideas about how to approach, how to understand, how to appreciate Hitchcock. The central idea, the central new insight being this notion of romantic irony, which uh, is there to upset, as it were, the established and thus far dominating dichotomies through which generations of scholars have approached Hitchcock, namely dealing with questions such as, is Hitchcock a traditionalist or a modernist? Is he a reactionary or a progressive filmmaker? Is he just a storyteller or a great formalist? through the notion of romantic irony and other theoretical, conceptual, methodological devices, Richard seeks to upset these and to show that, in a way, Hitchcock is, uh, in the best sense of the word, a kind of equivocal filmmaker who both undoes, subverts certain sets of ideas and values as he goes about still reinforcing them on a different level. The other aspect of Richard's really seminal importance in the field of Hitchcock studies has to do with his, I guess, executive role in the field, 
He is the editor of the Hitchcock Annual. He was the principal organizer of a really humongous conference, one of the biggest I've ever attended, on the occasion of the centennial anniversary of Alfred Hitchcock in 1999, which for some four or five days, all day long, five, six, seven panels going on at the same time, everybody talking about Hitchcock. Everybody was there who had something to say about Hitchcock at that time. And then uh, uh, I'd just like to close by saying that it would be unfair if I talked about Richard exclusively as a, as a Hitchcock scholar, because he indeed is much, much more than just that. He's a great film scholar at large, uh, a great, at one time, film theorist, and then, at another time, great anti-film theorist, <laughs> currently a very, very uh, invested scholar in Indian cinema, and I just found out that, in fact, the monograph of his own Indian cinema entitled Islamicate Genres of Bombay Cinema is coming out in the spring. Richard is a great pedagogue and uh, last but by no means least, a great proponent of passionate and even fiery intellectual debates. So please join me in wel welcoming Richard Allen. Well, after that introduction, <laughs> thank you so much, um, Pavle. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I want to thank the uh, Stanford Humanities Institute for inviting me and uh, thank also my friends on the Film Studies program. And, and I, could, I guess I could say former students, uh, Scott and, and Pavle, for helping to organize this event. Um, so, Vertigo, the Perfection of Form is the title of my talk. Uh, it's a title actually taken from uh, the person who I think remains the uh, most important critic of Hitchcock's work, Robin Wood. When I was asked to give this lecture, I was told that the organisers wanted to hear my personal responses to the film and the meaning that Vertigo has for me. I have to confess, I initially balked at that request, and I felt perhaps you might have better invited Stanley Cavell to give this talk. I've always sought to ground my critical responses to a film in the relationship between form, style and meaning, rather than in my personal reactions and responses to it, in the belief that scholarship consists in the creation and transmission of knowledge. The task of the film scholar, I believe, is not to investigate his or her own responses, but the work itself that serves to frame and shape those responses. However, since the question has been asked of me, I will frame some observations on the relationship between form, style and meaning in Vertigo, which I believe are not simply personal responses, with some reflections on my own responses to the film in the hope of illuminating a meaningful connection between them. So, my first confession is that for a long time I never really liked Vertigo. <laughs> on the one hand, I couldn't get beyond the utter implausibilities of the film's plot and the turgid place, pace at which it unravels. Who would conduct a crime scheme at once so elaborate and with so little chance of success? Why and how would Elster have concocted such an elaborate prop with Judy that wholly depends on Scott's disability that he'd only recently learned about from reading the newspaper? Why would Madeline possess the unique inheritance of Carlotta's jewellery from her mother, yet not be told anything about Carlotta? Her mother, we are alleged to believe, did not want to worry her daughter, and yet she gave her the jewellery and, and she told Elster. How did Elster and Judy escape from the bell tower, and why would Elster have given himself such a risky and, imp risky and implausible options? The last, the last place a fleeing murderer would want to be stuck at is at the top of a tower from which the victim has just been thrown. <laughs> why would the incisive coroner have not investigated more thoroughly the corpse? We hear at the end that having a neck broken. We hear at the end that she had a neck that having a neck broken before she was thrown off the tower killed Mrs. Elster. Why would hard-headed Scotty, just retired, accept such a wacky assignment to begin with, following the wife of a man whom the husband believed to be possessed by a ghost, etc., etc.? On the other hand, like Midge, I did not find Mandolin credible as an object of adoration. 
I could not understand what was appealing to Scotty about the incarnation of Judy as Madeline, who seems such a manifestly fake, contrived, and asexual figure in comparison to Midge, who's so authentic, independent, and gutsy, and Scott is equal in every respect. Uh, probably I was influenced by the fact that at a tender age I'd read Simone de Beauvoir and British feminists like Sheila Rowbottom before I even saw Vertigo. So I was very much in sympathy with the uh, plight and situation of Midge in this film. Furthermore, I did not find Judy, as played by Kim Novak, to be an intrinsically sympathetic character either. I sympathised with her only because of the way Scotty treats her. I was in agreement with the large body of feminist criticism on the film that rightly sees Scotty's actions in the second half of the work as pathologically manipulative and degrading towards Judy, and conceives him to be essentially afflicted by the same distorted image of woman from the very start. Yes, I appreciated Vertigo as an essay in male pathology, and the acting of James Stewart that embodied that pathology. However, not only was the plot contrived, I could not relate to either of the main characters, and therefore the film did not engage me or move me in the way it seemed to move, say, Robin Wood. While, of course, I always admired the supreme stylization of the film as the greatest of Hitchcock's achievements in cinema, this achievement only seemed all the more out of sync with the unconvincing plot and characterization. In this respect, Vertigo seemed to anticipate the problem that besets Hitchcock's late films like Torn Curtain, 1966, and Topaz, 1969, and it points to the broader spectrum, uh, the, br the broader problem that Hitch the critics of Hitchcock identify in his work. All technique, no substance. In my defense, this version in its broad outline, if not in its details, has been expressed by many of my undergraduate students for whom Vertigo is rarely their film of choice, and some of whom have loathed the film. What then changed? This is my second confession. As I became older, I began to identify with Scotty Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> I saw in him a romantic, all the more poignant because of his age, that my younger, ironic, and ostensibly know-it-all but actually heavily defended self, refused to believe in. What I solely began to appreciate in my older age is that Vertigo is not simply a film about male pathology, but a story about love, about the idea and the ideal of love, belated, almost lost for good, but never too late, until it's tragically lost forever. The highly contrived plot is, of course, merely a pretext for staging the story of a love that is agonizingly close to realization, yet forever out of reach. The existence of this love story is the only condition under which the pathology that consumes the second half of the film makes sense. The problem with much of the valuable body of feminist criticism on the film is that it retrospectively reads the pathology that governs the second half of the film as one that already governs the first half. And so it is as if, from the very beginning, Scotty is simply delusional, succumbing to a self-evident idealization and fantasy, and, and incipiently perverted, a voyeur, a fetishist, and even a necrophile, if we are to understand that he falls for Madeline possessed, a possession that excludes the aura of death. By the way, when I re refer to Madeline now, it's always Madeline in quotations. I'm just not going to keep waving my hands in the air all the time. <laughs> but this interpretation robs the film of its pathos, of its profundity, and of, it, of its meaning. For the delusion he suffers is not simply a delusion. It is the delusion of love that requires, as its condition of existence, the elevation and ennoblement of the person to whom the emotion is directed into an ideal in the manner that recasts the self as a satellite in his or her orbit. The ordinary qualities of the loved one appear quite extraordinary, and the feelings they arouse, arouse cast a halo of light upon the world that makes the everyday shine. Scotty falls in love with Madeline like an Orpheus seeking to rescue his Eurydice from possession by death only to lose her to death. It is this that creates the excruciating pathos of the film, both for Scotty, who so much wants her back, and for Judy, who so much wants to be re-found, but can only be acknowledged within the alienating masquerade of Madeline. Of course, to deny that love is simply delusional is not to deny its proximity to, to illusion. Judy is not Madeline. 
What vertigo is about, it seems to me, is precisely the relationship between the object of love as an ideal manifestation of the person who is adored, which romantic love requires in order to exist and to be nourished, and the object of desire considered as an idealization, which is a fictional construct that is wholly cut to the measure of the lover's fantasy. The difference between the ideal object of love and the idealized object of fantasy or desire surely turns on the relationship that the lover's perception bears to the person loved. Both the ideal and the idealization are, in a sense, fictions, but an, in an idealization, the perceived traits of the other are projected upon them, since they issue solely from the desire of the perceiver. In the ideal, the actual traits or qualities of the other are intensified and amplified to form the ideal. To put the point another way, in romantic love, the other participates in the creation of the ideal. It is a co-created fiction, as in Hitchcock's most delirious romances, like the Grant Kelly vehicle, To Catch a Thief, 1955, and North by Northwest, 1959. The contrived story of Vertigo exists to dramatize how the ideal of Madeline turns, under the conditions of loss, into an idealization that Scotty imposes upon the figure of Judy. Furthermore, the retrospective view, while at one level convincing, tarnishes, tarnishes the ideal of love with the thought that it was always an idealization or a delusion. But this retrospective understanding, though plausible and in a sense true, ignores the fact that for a while, Judy was indeed Madeline and not only for Scotty. For Madeline is not simply a fictional construct, she's also Judy. Now, to be sure, Judy participates in the construction of Madeline in order to ensnare Scotty, with Elster, amongst his other nefarious attributes, acting as her pimp. But this fictional construction takes on a life of its own for both, Judy, for both Scotty and Judy. Through the vehicle of this fiction, Scotty indeed becomes the rescuer, and Judy becomes the one who deserves to be rescued as they deliriously embrace by the seashore to Herman's Wagnerian theme. Her living death, after all, is not simply her fictional possession. It is also her actual possession and manipulation by Elster and men like him, and perhaps more broadly, her life of everyday struggle. Thus, it is, thus it is, it is only because Judy is Madeline that she falls in love with Scotty even though, as she says, it was not supposed to happen that way. Thus, we are left with a paradox, one that I think lies at the heart of Hitchcock's vision, which I call romantic irony, in part after the German romantic philosopher Karl Wilhelm Friedrich von Schlegel. How can you ultimately discriminate the life-affirming, albeit fictional, ideal of romance from the delusory, adversely perverse, and incipiently deadly idealization of fantasy. Characteristically in his films, Hitchcock pursues this paradox in a darkly humorous way, full of jokes and visual puns. Hitchcock called it his English sense of humor. <coughs> I like to cite the end of Suspicion, 1943, where having long suspected with the heroine Lena, played by Joan Fontaine, that her husband, Johnny, paid by Cary Grant, is out to murder her, and having finally accepted his confession of innocence, which pours out at the end, Johnny turns the car they are driving away from the camera back to their home, their family home, and we watch as his arm creeps around her back. Is this a gesture of reconciliation and of love, or the snake-like coil of death? you've just got to look carefully how he actually, the speed at which, I, oops, I would have to say in my defense, if those of you who don't buy it, that he's been associated with natural predators throughout the film. But while there are some visual puns in Vertigo, most notably Midge's Dorian Gray-like deflation of the portrait of Carlotta, to which I shall return, the overall tone of the film is one of profound melancholy that borders on the tragic. Hitchcock fully implicates the spectator in the enchantment of Judy and the path of Scotty's desire, not simply through character identification and point of view, but through the orchestration of camera movement, color and, graphic, graphic, and graphic design, 
and mise-en-scene in a manner that makes the film itself a correlate for the spectator of Scotty's aestheticized object of desire. The result is a film of aching beauty, a supreme achievement in the history of cinema, and one that we are here all to celebrate. Vertigo is an adaptation of D'Entre les Morts by Beaulieu and Narsajak, and much of the plot of Vertigo, as well as the idea of aestheticism that informs it, is, is drawn from this source. And I'm sure we'll be discussing uh, this, the literary basis of Vertigo some more this afternoon. But in the remainder of this talk, I want to hone in more closely upon nature, the nature of Hitchcock's achievement in Vertigo as a work of cinema. Hitchcock often spoke of the idea of pure cinema, by which he simply meant storytelling in film without dialogue. That is, storytelling that is conveyed purely through the orchestration of space and sound in time. Hitchcock conceives these sequences in terms of narrative suspense, the anxious anticipation of a narrative outcome that dictates the logic of the unfolding image-sound sequence and binds the spectator's emotions to it. Suspense is often associated in Hitchcock's films and elsewhere with, the, with an on-the-edge-of-your-seat panic about a threat posed to a character of which they may be unaware, but which looks likely to issue in disaster. And Hitchcock certainly orchestrates this kind of suspense in films like Sabotage, 1935, and The Birds, 1963, and elsewhere. But Hitchcock, to my mind, is even more interested in a creepier, low-level form of suspense, associated not with the known, but with the unknown. That is, with the secret, whose content is tainted with an aura of incipiently perverse sexuality. I mean, all sex is perverse in Hitchcock, let's make it clear. Hitchcock's sequences of pure suspense serve to orchestrate those moments where everyday heroes, or occasionally heroines, are cast adrift from their ordinary, familiar moorings. We might recall here a scene from The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956, where James Stewart plays Ben McKenna, a doctor and family man whose son has been kidnapped and his marriage put under stress. Temporarily leaving his wife to search the streets of London, McKenna pursues a false lead to his son's whereabouts and is literally led up the garden path. Let us note the features of this scene. Ben walks along a deserted London street and begins to hear footsteps echoing behind him. He walks on warily, then turns. No one is there. Again, he walks on and turns, and a sinister, rather anemic-looking man approaches him. Ben stops to look at his watch as if he's not looking at the man. The man passes him and then arriving at the entrance to a taxidermist, turns and looks at him. At this point, Hitchcock begins his forward tracking point of view shot and backward tracking reaction shot to register the sense of the character at once plunging into the unknown and at the same time being drawn into it. The taxidermist turn out to be a dark, turns out to be a dark, sterile, masculine space with dead, phallic-shaped stuffed animals and, and bald old men who proceed to attack Ben with their wares. My point is, perhaps controversially, that this sequence in its dramaturgy and visual design suggests a pickup, the anticipation of a consummation and indeed, though you didn't see it, a final parody of a gang rape. Hitchcockian suspense, here and elsewhere, has a sexual content and an aura of perverse fascination that is expressed through form. And this aura of perversity invites the audience to savour the condition of being held in suspense. Suspense here is, here is self-consciously aestheticised, but as so often in Hitchcock, this aestheticisation takes the form of a joke. It is a light black comedy, since the sexual content is simply there to put the spe spectator slightly off kilter, to create an aura of unease. It's undoubtedly not consciously perceived by most audiences as having a sexual content at all, and perhaps you don't believe me anyway. But in Vertigo, where James Stewart is also led up the garden path, the consequences are no longer a sadistic joke. The allure of eros is something that is deadly serious. The aestheticization is sublime. It embodies and enacts desire through form, rather than displacing it into the form of a in the form of a joke. The moment when Scotty is cast adrift in vertigo is, of course, after he's met Gavin Elster. There follows over 10 minutes of Hitchcockian pure cinema 
that consists largely of a rigorous shot-counter-shot point-of-view alternation as Scotty first encounters Madeline at Ernie's restaurant and then pursues her by car around the spiralling streets of San Francisco, first to the flower shop, then to Carlotta's graveyard and the Mission Dolores, and finally to the painting of Carlotta at the Palace of the Legion of Honour. In each of these setting, settings, Madeline poses in profile to the eye of Scotty, a profile to the, the knowing, that, to the knowing observer, becomes a Janus face, whose dark side is concealed beneath an outline of perfection. Until finally, in the art gallery, Scotty's eyes tracks her profile to the profile of Carlotta. Later in the car, after dropping off Midge, Scotty looks at the picture of Carlotta he's seen previously and explicitly juxtaposes it in his mind's eye to the profile of Judy as Madeline. By assuming in part the image of Carlotta in her masquerade of, masquerade of Madeline possessed, Judy herself appears as a semblance and her ghost-like quality conveys a sense of a transcendent, timeless, androgynous beauty like Wilde's Dorian Gray who borrows the eternally youthful properties of the image, his image in order to defy mortality. When Midge inscribes her all-too-human face and contours upon the image of Carlotta, for a moment she punctures the ideal that Madeline is for Scotty, conveying an alert and fleshy thereness that is all too everyday, too human for comfort. And then in a Dorian Gray-like gesture again, she defaces it. In the extraordinary scene at Ernie's restaurant, Hitchcock establishes an identification between the beautiful illusion that is Madeline for Scotty and the beautiful illusion of the film itself as a work of art. For the plain, middle-class Scotty, the world of Ernie's, where Elster and Madeline are dining on their way to the opera, is the acme of cultured sophistication. The scene begins with a camera movement towards a doorway of radiant red and yellow stained glass that immediately evokes the domain of the spiritual and the sublime, but also through its design motif arguably suggests a devil's horns. The colour scheme, too, indicates that we are entering Hitchcock's shadow world, a world of death and desire, and the doorway has the force at once of a barrier and a lure. The next shot, as if in continuation of the first camera movement, consists of a languid, fluid gesture of the camera that tracks back from Scotty at the bar through a partition that at once separates and connects the bar and the dining area as he glances screen left to the back of the restaurant. The camera pauses momentarily as it changes direction to take in the dining room with its glorious, deep saturated red tapestry walls and formal white floral arrangements. It is positioned exactly opposite a picture framed by white flowers and wall lights on the far wall in a manner that evokes like a mirror the pictorial framing of the shot itself and is configured as an altar to beauty. The camera then begins to move forward from this establishing shot towards the object that Scotty's gaze seeks out, Judy Barton as Madeline Elster, shining in an emerald green stole over her black dress. Just as the camera begins its movement, the warm ambient sound of sophisticated conversation fades out and Bernard Herrmann's yearning violin motif fills our ears. The camera stops by framing the scene with Judy at its centre, the vanishing point of the image is located exactly upon the spiral or coil of her blonde hairdo that Scotty later associates with the curl of, of Carlotta's hair. The camera also swoops downwards at that moment. So it's the forward tracking movement in, the Ernest restaurant, in Ernest Restaurant suggests the forward tracking point of view shot that's used throughout the film to evoke Scotty's investigation and pursuit of Madeline. The backward tracking movement in the earnest scene evokes the backward tracking reaction shot that in association with the forward tracking point of view shot registers the manner in which Scotty is drawn into the object of his desire. However, here the camera movement does not straightforwardly articulate a point of view. Instead, Hitchcock self-consciously sets up the relationship between the elements of the point of view structure that the rest of the film will enact. He traces objectively the structure that the rest of the film will trace subjectively. Scotty does not actually see Madeline directly. Instead, it is the camera itself that traces the connection between Scotty and the object of allure. And since Scotty does not literally see Madeline, the camera does not occupy his point of view. Instead, it stages the relationship between looker and the object of his look, creating a subjective stru shot structure, but with the subjectivity removed. 
Hitchcock here, as it were, announces the identification that will be made by his camera with the subjective allure that Madeline holds for Scotty. By rendering a subjective gaze objective in this way, it is as if Scotty's subjective ideal of perfection has actually been made real. In the microcosm of Ernest's restaurant, the glimmering allure of Madeline is equated with the allure of the world of the film itself as an ideal, aestheticized, hyperbolic reality, more real than reality itself. That is a surreal universe that is embodied in deep, saturated reds. The rest of the sequence in Ernie's restaurant repeats and reenacts this configuration of Scotty's relationship to Madeline through a series of shot-reverse-shot exchanges. The sequence opens with a shot-reverse-shot exchange across the space of Ernie's between Scotty looking sideways in profile, framed against a picture on the rear wall behind him, and a water jug, the shape of a milk jug, jug subtly suggesting both that he is a, a man of moderation and the nature of his desire, and Madeline, also in profile and framed by the doorway behind her. Because Scotty is glancing sideways, the effect of this shot-reverse-shot point-of-view structure is to graphically match the position of the figures in successive frames, at once anticipating and evoking the sense in which Madeline is Scotty's double, that is, someone with whom he is completely identified. Madeline then approaches from the background to the foreground, shadowed by Elster, with the image of a peacock on the wall to her left, balancing her position in the frame on the right as she preens for Scotty's gaze. When she reaches the near doorway that creates a new frame around her, she momentarily again turns her profile towards Scotty. Then, followed by the camera, she walks forward, so she's framed in a static profile, her pale skin and blonde hair standing out against the red background, and haloed by a momentarily intensified light. A second set of shot-reverse shots follows. Scotty sits at the bar, looking profile right, and Hitchcock cuts to Madeline, also looking profile right. If you think about it for a moment, the spatial configuration of this shot is an impossible one. If Scotty is taking a sidelong glance, the figure he is looking at, Madeline, should be facing screen left, not screen right, as she walks out of the restaurant. So once again, while the shot of Madeline evokes a point of view, it's not a point of view shot, but, as it were, something imagined made real, something that Scotty's sidelong glance brings into being. The second effect of this spatially mismatched reverse field cutting is once again to marry the profiles of the two characters whose movements of turning away also mime one another in a reciprocal gesture of disavowed acknowledgement. We might recall here a later scene first discussed by Marshall Dutelbaum, where Scotty, now completely enmeshed in Madeline's story, coaxes her to remember her visit to the mission San Juan, remember her mission to the San Juan Batista. Again, shot-reverse-shot sequence constructs an impossible space in order to graphically match Scotty and Madeline in the same position. And this one, this one is... I mean, it's, an, it's a testament to Hitchcock's, you know, this is a film, mainstream Hollywood filmmaker, his sort of no-holds-barred commitment to uh, the, the realisation of this, that he would make such a radical uh, 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 transgression of, of, you know, any kind of continuity norm. Um, the scene at El Ernie's closes as Elster joins Madeline to leave the restaurant. Scotty looks the other way down what appears as a hall of mirrors as both Elster and Madeline are framed and doubled in a full-length mirror while they exit in a manner that suggests their alter egos. While they exit in a manner that suggests their alter egos. This shot is recalled later in the scene at Ransohoff's whereas Scotty, now acting like Elster, coercively remodels Madeline in Judy's image. Uh, 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 sorry, coercively remodels Judy in Madeline's image. And she vainly resists. Their images are doubled in the mirror as Scotty's demonic side has been revealed to match Madeline's own duplicity. The forward tracking point of view shot, backward tracking reaction shot structure of the film that commences after the scene in Ernie's restaurant creates a movement in which the object of sight and desire, the lure for the gaze, keeps, as it were, receding from view. On her way to visit Carlotta's grave, Madeline disappears from view into the flower shop. She disappears from view as she enters the church. She disappears again as she leaves the church for the graveyard. And finally, she vanishes altogether at the McKittrick Hotel. Hitchcock evokes the idea of an object of allure that's forever out of reach through the motif of a spiral whose ends perpetually never connect. 
As many critics have suggested, the spiral motif in Vertigo defines the meaning of Vertigo in the film that links Scott's acrophobia, his fear of falling, via his anxious, soulful gaze to the theme of sexual desire or falling in love. These somatic associations are evoked in the film's credit sequence, where following the Vertigo credit itself, spiral motifs issue from the red-filtered eye of a woman whose face and red lips have previously been isolated on screen. Moving coloured spirals that suggest the colour scheme of the film, red, yellow, mauve, jade, green, then emerge from a black background, evoking associations of galaxies, vortexes, female genitalia and eyes, before finally submerging back into the red-filtered eye as, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, emerges on the screen. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip that clip. I mean, I'm sure you will remember it. I've already noted, in addition, the spiral of Madeleine's hair borrowed from the portrait of Carlotta, which becomes the focal point of Scotty's fix fixation as he falls in love with her. By filming Scotty's pursuit of Madeleine on the hills of San Francisco, Hitchcock builds a downward spiraling motif into the overall structure of the chase. However, since Scotty does not initially connect with the object he pursues, the spiral of pursuit remains for a time in a state of unstable equilibrium. The slow, languid movement of fascination and nascent desire is so intense in the sequences of pursuit that it evokes a subjective, dreamlike experience of time. In his notorious vertigo shot, Hitchcock manages ingeniously to at once combine the forward and backward camera movements and the motif of the spiral into a single shot. The visceral experience of Scott's acrophobia is embodied in a combination zoom-in, track-out, point-of-view shot that is embedded in the spiral-like structure of the staircase in the bell tower of the Mission San Juan Batista. The representation through the camera movement and zoom of the experience of falling creates an effect that is precisely the opposite of the camera movement that brings into being Scotty's relationship to Madeline. The vertigo shot represents the destruction of Scotty's sense of self that the beautiful illusion of Madeline served to sustain. Madeline perishes for Scotty moments after his attack of vertigo, and Scotty himself is reduced to a catatonic state. Equally, in the vertigo shot, the beautiful illusion of the film itself is destroyed. The contemplative experience of beauty ravishingly created in Ernie's restaurant is transformed into the sensation of shock and overt manipulation. Hitchcock's reverse field cutting between the forward tracking shot and the backward tracking reaction shot sustains the difference between self and other, even as, even as it articulates the allure of the other, the object of desire. In the vertigo shot, the relationship between self and world implodes. Scotty is at once pulled into and seems to fall into the spatial field in a way that collapses the distance between subject and object the, gr the graphic spiral formed by the staircase seems to suddenly stretch like a spring whose tension is collapsed. Scotty will never reach his destination. His vertigo stretches to breaking point, the thread linking his present desire to its future realization, and he confronts an implosion of space in a colorless spiraling void in a manner that is akin to madness. The spiral vertigo motif is recalled again in the 360-degree camera movement that occurs in the scene with Judy at the Empire Hotel, where Scotty has completed his Pygmalion-like recreation of Judy as Madeline, as if now it is Madeline rather than Carlotta who has been raised from the dead. As Judy, now Madeline, emerges from the bathroom, she appears bathed in a ghostly jade light that's reflected into the room from the neon light outside. We see that jade light reflected back in the look of his eyes, as if the eye of the beholder has become or merged with the object of his gaze. Hitchcock uses this light repeatedly in his film to create an aura of deathliness, and he claims to have derived the colour from the London stage of his youth. But the illusion that Scotty has created is no longer one of which he is simply an observer. Here he participates in the creation of the illusion, and Madeline is once again the vehicle by which the love between Scotty and Judy can be reignited. 
brilliantly and in a scene that has many times been copied by less subtle minds, Hitchcock contrives to cast the embrace of the couple within a 360-degree camera movement, where the camera itself embraces the lovers and serves to delimit the space they inhabit as a microcosm that is freed from the space and time of the drab, of the drab hotel they, inha they inhabit. The movement of the camera creates a spiral with Judy and Scotty together within its eye, as if the gap between self and other has now been transcended in a final ecstatic union. The effect here achieved is the opposite mirror effect of the vertigo shot. Instead of being pulled into the vanishing point in a manner that destroys the possibility of any relationship between self and other, Scotty is now, as it were, magically united with his object of desire in a moment of suspended animation at the eye of a spiral where time is standing still. The camera movement now registers not a moment in time or a sense of the loss of time or time receding, but the utopian sense of an infinite present, as if by achieving his object of desire, Scotty has momentarily escaped the confines of his mortality. As Scotty kisses Judy as Madeline in close-up, the camera starts to track around them to the right, but pans left as if being drawn into them. Then it continues to track right and is again drawn in. Suddenly, the background of the shot begins to transform into the environment of the Mission San Juan Batista stable, the historical space place of Scotty's last encounter with Madeline and the place associated with Carlotta Valdez. As Scotty senses the background changing, that is to say, as his historical memory is triggered, the camera slows its movement and begins to pull back to medium shot. Simultaneously, the background itself begins to move from left to right, creating a sense that the spiral is being opened out by centrifugal forces. Then, as the hint of a memory recedes, the camera again begins tracking and panning centripetally to conclude the shot in the tightest close-up of the sequence that is set against an abstract background of ethereal, timeless jade green light. It is an idealized image of romantic embrace, as if the contradiction between past and present has been dialectically overcome in a moment of sublime transcendence. However, Bernard Herrmann's Liebstod theme, together with Hitchcock's ghostly light, reveals that this ideal is one that cannot be reconciled with living historical reality. And Hitchcock's camera movement demonstrates the conditions under which this microcosm will unravel in the very act of being created. For if the circling movement overcomes the contradiction between past and present, it also suggests by bringing the past back into back into the present, the illusory nature of the transcendence that is achieved. Scotty participates in Sco Judy participates in Scotty's fantasy because she is in love with him and wants their love to be realized. But the terms upon which their love is realized can only bring about its destruction. For at the moment, their past embrace at the mission is replicated exactly. Scotty, the literal-minded dreamer, is reminded, as it were, by Hitchcock, the narrator, that the beautiful illusion that is Madeline, if the beautiful illusion that is Madeline has now been completely recreated in the person of Judy, then it must have actually been an illusion, a fraud. Though at this moment, he's not ready to fully comprehend this intuition. Exposed to the doubt cast by memory, this imaginary temporal enclosure will inevitably unravel back into a sense of history, of the passing of time, of mortality, and of separation. Scott's recognition happens moments later, where, after an ellipsis where the couple make love, how does Scotty not recognize Judy then? They disguised, they, disguised, <laughs> they decide to go out for a meal, and Judy recommends that they go to Ernie's restaurant. She's already wearing the black dress that she wore when they originally met in Ernie's, and now, in this moment of romantic renewal, she fatefully puts on not the emerald, not the emerald pendant she wore in their original encounter, but the ruby pendant of Carlotta. Immediately, Scotty perceives it. The pendant triggers his memory of the painting of Carlotta, and he finally consciously realizes that Judy and Madeline, uh, Judy and Madeline. Uh, were one and the same woman. Does Judy, through this psychic slip, unconsciously wish to communicate her true identity to Scotty, 
to relieve herself from her imprisonment in the masquerade, even though she also knows that such an undoing of the fiction of Madeline could have catastrophic consequences for their love, the results are indeed devastating. Scotty can only see Madeline as the vehicle of his deception, rather than the vehicle that has enabled him and Judy to fall in love. And so he drags her up the bell tower to reenact what happened there on their first ascent. Yet Judy protests. I was safe when you found me. There was nothing that you could prove. But when I saw you again, I couldn't run away. I loved you so. I walked into danger and let you change me because I loved you and I wanted you. Oh, Scotty. Oh, Scotty, please, you love me now. Keep me safe. Too late, Scotty responds, using the words that Madeline has used with him earlier when she left to climb the bell tower for the first time. It's too late. There's no bringing her back. But when Judy says, please, they embrace. And it seems as if, even at this late stage, hope against hope, their love might be rescued. However, the tenor of this story is one that cannot admit of a happy ending, and Hitchcock, the narrator, intervenes in a way that bears comparison with the conclusion of North by Northwest, made a year later. At the conclusion of North by Northwest, you may recall, Roger Thornhill, Cary Grant, is holding onto a ledge on Mount Rushmore by the crushed fingertips of his hand as he clings to the wrist of Eve, Eva Marie Saint, with his other hand as she dangles below him over a sheer precipice. All looks hopeless for the couple. Then, in a magical match on action, Hitchcock cuts from this situation of certain disaster. We imagine Thornhill, unwilling to let go of the woman he loves, and plunging to her death with her. Sorry, uh, we imagine uh, plunging, plunging with her to his death. Or, as in Vertigo, surviving her fall, for which she would blame himself. To a shot of Thornhill pulling Eve up to a cosy marital bed. The film ends with a final benignly perverse image of an express train rattling into a tunnel. Here, cinematic artifice works to ensure, come what may, the redemption of the couple and romantic renewal. In Hitchcock's orchestration of the conclusion of Vertigo, just as the couple embrace, a black figure arises from the trapdoor in the bell tower. Judy turns away from Scotty as she reacts in horror to the apparition and falls to her death leaving Scotty standing on the ledge of the bell tower, once again reduced to a near catatonic state, having only moments before apparently conquered his vertigo. The church bell rang by the nun tolls both Judy's death and the end of Scotty's hope. He's left with nothing, without Judy and without even his memories of Madeline that had still sustained him up to this point. Of course, there's always Midge, but Hitchcock rightly rejected the insipid ending that stages their reunion. The conclusion of Vertigo is like the ending of North by Northwest in the sense that both stage an ironic reversal made possible by a deus ex machina narrative conceit of artifice. In both, and in both, this reversal takes the form of a visual pun. There, the joke was a magical catch, match on action. Here, the nun is mistaken for a ghostly figure of death. However, the implications of this ironic reversal are precisely opposite to the ending of North by Northwest. The handmaiden of God arises as the agent of death and causes the man to lose the hold of the woman he loves and the woman to plunge to her death. Often, in my experience of viewing the film, this ending causes consternation in the audience, unlike the exuberant response to the closure of North by Northwest, as if the characters and with them the spectator of the film have arbitrarily been robbed of happiness. But of course, this is precisely Hitchcock's point. Vertigo had to end this way. So how today do my personal responses to the film measure up to a work that I've watched now too many times to count? I no longer care about Vertigo's silly plot, and I trust I have by now sufficiently demonstrated to you my appreciation of Vertigo's sublime form. I continue to be mesmerised by James Stewart's performance that brings such depth, such gravitas to his character and yields a portrayal of male vulnerability and loss that's rarely seen still on the American screen. Even as he finds himself in the role of the coercive male, in many ways he also occupies the place of Hitchcock's female leads in his female-centred melodramas like the character of young Charlie, Teresa Wright in Shadow of a Doubt, 
deeply attached to someone he loves, his proximity to them promotes the discovery that they are not what they seem, which leads to a profound sense of disenchantment with the world. Barbara Belgedis as Midge remains for me as, well, Midge, a smart professional woman, an emotional rock, a mensch, but she's not a plausible candidate for romance. Her voice alone is too annoying for that. <laughs> but, I've, but I've also come to a new appreciation of Kim Novak and the character of Judy. In an interview, Novak speaks of how she hated the grey suit of Madeline that she was forced to wear like a straitjacket, which is incidentally from the novel, The Suit, and how she turned that dislike to her advantage in this, in in this out-of-skin characterization. As for Judy, critics often speak of her as a victim, and to be sure, she has been badly treated by men. But she's also a feisty, independent woman who, as she makes clear to Scotty, knows how to look after herself. She is surely complicit in Elster's plot, not merely as stooge. It is this agency that gives drama and pathos to her own suffering, how so very badly she has wronged the person she most loves. That is why, on the bell tower at the end, I see these two ordinary emotional misfits meeting as equals, equally tarnished, equally suffering, with the promise of love still possible, even under conditions that are so compromised. Indeed, because they have been so, indeed, because, because they have both so compromised one another. It is why also I still find the ending of the film to be utterly unbearable. Thank you. So we have time for some questions and discussion, and this room is a little bit hard to hear in, so if you raise your hands, uh, Richard will kind of point, and I'll try to get you the mic. In white. I wasn't going to bring up her performance, but since you just brought it up and said that you finally appreciate it, um, do you want to talk about how he first wanted Grace Kelly for the role, and she didn't want it because she was now married to Prince Rainier. And I wonder if you would talk about how you think this performance is versus what Grace Kelly, who is so different, might have done. That's an interesting question. Uh, sort of, what if? Um, well, I think, I think that uh, clearly you would have had the opposite problem than you have with, uh, with, with um, uh, 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 Kim Novak. You know, Kim Novak seems to me much more at home in the role of uh, Judy than she is in the role of Madeline. Uh, uh, this, I think, uh, uh, has its pluses and minuses. Uh, I do think that, 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 it, that, it, that, that her inhabiting the role of, Ma in, in, in the way she inhabits the role of Madeline, it emphasizes the artifice and constructedness of the character, which is the thing that I had negative reactions to. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's clearly, uh, it clearly remains, I think, a, a problem. Grace Kelly, on the other hand, would have been wonderful as Madeline. You know, she would have been suave, eloquent, beautiful, alluring, everything that Grace Kelly is. Um, now, I think, though, one would have to... It's harder to imagine uh, how Grace Kelly would have performed the Judy role. I mean, she's an excellent actress, uh, uh, so, you know, one could imagine she would have pulled it off quite well. But of I think the effect would have been different. Uh, the impact of the film would have been different uh, because of that. Hi, my name is James, and I'm a director filmmaker from Movie Head Picture. And I have two questions. Um, the first one is, uh, uh, you know, Hitch, uh, why did uh, Mr. Hitchcock never, you know, uh, never stated? I, I, I watch all the documentary, you know, interviewing him. That he never stated that Vertigo. Uh, he never thought that Vertigo. He never mentioned it, but he, he said that Shadow that was his greatest film, the best film, you know. And uh, so that's why, why, why is that, you know? And second, also is, do you think that uh, Vertigo is uh, Hitchcock's greatest romantic thriller and film, and why? Um, well, actually, uh, in an earlier version of the talk, I don't think it was in there anymore, I did, <laughs> I did, I did, I did touch on this point. Um, 
I think I, I, Vertigo is not my favourite Hitchcock film, still, even now. I mean, I think it's a masterpiece, but there are other Hitchcock films I prefer. Shadow of a Doubt is one of them. So I can, I can wholly concur with Hitchcock's own assessment. I mean, Shadow of a Doubt, I think, is, a, is an extraordinary, extraordinary film because I think that it's out of all his oeuvre, um, perhaps along with The Birds, um, The Birds has other kinds of flaws. Shadow of a Doubt uh, has this felicitous combination of, a, of, a, of, of the Hitchcockian stylistic idiom and vision, the vision I call romantic irony, with a brilliant script, a brilliant, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, characterization and, and milieu. Um, it's, it's a sort of, it, it is a, and, and I think it's in, in that sense, along with the birds, I think it's the, it's the most articulate distillation of Hitchcock's vision. Um, uh, what was your second question? Well, first question? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've argued why I think it's a brilliant film. It's not. It's you know, it's, oh, these questions are greatest. I would say it's not my favourite Hitchcock film, but it's also his greatest masterpiece. <laughs> Hi, Scott. Uh, is this thing on? Uh, I love what you said at the end about that the two of them have compromised one another, and that's a sort of side of the film that I haven't given enough credence to because I'm, I'm slightly younger than you, just slightly, and <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still hung up on the pathology of Scotty's character and had, and had not. And what I find about the film is that no matter how many times people see it, and more than any film, it needs to be seen more than once. I mean, all films do, but this one demands a second viewing in order to understand that Madeline is Judy. But... Um, Students, and even I, tend to forget, even re-watching the first half of the film, that Madeline is not Madeline. And that when she walks through Ernie's and stops just there, just so, and has the sublime little halo effect behind her, that she is playing him at that very moment. That this is not an accidental juxtaposition at all, but is in fact you know, part of this elaborate deception, which leads him to believe in an ideal right that in fact from the get-go is designed to make him think that. Right. And I just wonder if you want to comment on that any further. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, there's no denying the, the, the artifice and the um, deception wrought by, uh, Ju you know, Judy as Madeline on Scotty. Uh, the, the point I'm trying to get at or open up, and I, and I agree, it's the hardest film, perhaps the hardest film in Hitchcock's canon to actually make this argument for. Is, 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 is that this figure of artifice, this fiction, thinking about other contexts other than vertigo, is so important to romance, to the constitution of romance. And that even in this case, Madeline, in a sense, works to bring Judy and Scotty together. Of course, you have the, Ma there's the Madeline that is Elst Elster's creation, and there is the Madeline that is the deception and the lure, the sort of, you know, like Keats's Lamia, you know, she's bedecked like the, the wonderful serpent, you know, who's, who's alluring the, uh, the wonderful, the serpent bedecked as the wonderful figure who's alluring the hero of the poem. Uh, and yet, Madeline is also Judy. And, and there's something about her expressive force that is Judy. And that that emerges at different moments in that, well, of course, the retrospective viewing of the film. It emerges at different, at, at different moments. But, of course, when she's kissing Scotty at the seashore, she is kissing her, he, she is kissing him as Madeline, because that's... She, but she's, it's, a, it's as if that's an expression of her best, for, best self. It's as if Judy as Madeline can come to a, sub, a form of subjectivity that she didn't know she had in her, as it were, but she does. She can love somebody like Scotty. And I think that that's the other side of the story. Well, that's a really complicated scene because students, again, always laugh at that scene more than any other in the film, the just-so melodrama of the crashing surf and the crescendoing music. But again, the thought that she led him there precisely because it is the romantic cliche 
at its best, that she has brought him to that point. So right. again, I mean, I, I'm agreeing with you, but I find it amazing, the duality right in that very scene. Right. And in Ernie's as well, these two. Because right. it's all also part of the act. I mean, that, that scene of, you know, running, you know, it's, it's where, where, I mean, again, it's this a, a fundamental ambiguity. Where does the act begin, you know, where, well, it's, it, one could say, where does the act begin and end? Uh, but it's more complicated than that because it's, it's, it's where does artifice, it's, it's where everything is, you know, artifice is the source of romance and duplicity and deception in Hitchcock. So when is artifice benign and when it is pernicious? And how can you tell the difference between artifice and ben that is benign and pernicious? Thank you. Yes, Jean-Pierre Dupuis. I have a minor and possibly egregious question, but very minor, but when you <laughs> said in passing, just in passing, that when they make love uh, in the um, Empire Hotel room, he should recognize the first woman. I mean, they never made love. I mean, Scotty never made love with the first Madeline. Never. No. So, uh, well, he saw her naked, to be he sure. He saw her naked, that's oh, yes, the thing. But, okay, but okay, I don't that's want to go I mean, into that's details. That's what I meant. Yeah. I don't I didn't yeah, mean oh, yes, but I mean. <laughs> Okay, he you see what I mean? The recognition should come from making love with her. Right. I mean, and he never made, made love well, to my point the first was, Madeleine. No, you're right. I didn't mean to imply he'd made love, but the fact is that he sees her naked. And well, the, well, the, well, so that's the point that I was trying to make. How about the voice? Yes, the voice too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you said, it's impossible, but that's not Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, while we're on the subject of the hotel room, um, um, Professor, I thought you did a lovely um, explication of the spiraling camera movement around them. Um, and when I was watching it this time, and I've seen the film many, many times myself, um, you alluded to Scotty's self-awareness of what's going on there. But what struck me this time on seeing it is how he sort of looks up and goes, what's going on here? Right. And I wonder if you could talk about, more, more specifically, about that, that spark of awareness that he seems to have as that shift occurs. Well, I think it's one of those, I think there's, this, is, this, is a, I mean, this is a very interesting feature of Hitchcock's idiom, I think, where he, he, there's moments in his cinema where Hitchcock, the narrator, um, indicates something to you about the character or an aspect of the char a character that the, the, the character may, may not himself even be aware of. And, and, and you, know, it, you know, you can explain, explicate this in terms of unconscious motivation, you know, or, or there's a disavowal. Uh, the scene I used to like to cite is a scene from Rear Window where uh, uh, Grace Kelly's being attacked by Lars Thorwald across the, the courtyard. And... And, and, and Stuart is suffering on the other side. I mean, he really is uh, identifying, you know, with Grace Kelly and, and, worry, and worrying on her behalf. And yet, at the same time, we hear on the soundtrack that to see you is to love you, uh, uh, the, no, not to see you to love you, the Lisa theme, I'm sorry, being rendered as this beautiful love theme. And, and, that be, and when you look at this, well, there's somebody being attacked and you have a love theme orchestrating it, you began, to look, you began to think of his motivation for looking and the nature of the response that he's having in a different way, even in a way that, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a dimension that you can't explicate in terms of character motivation, but it sows in a sort of sense of that character's uh, perception or what it is they're thinking. And I think there's a similar kind of thing going on here. It's as if Hitchcock, the narrator, is, is reminding us and in a sense, reminding the character of something that the character is not yet in a position to be aware of. And yet it suggests that there is this, if you like, level of unconscious, you know, when's the moment of conscious recognition in this? Well, of course, it's dependent in sort of cliche recognition moment. But of course, it's the, it's the idea that there is some bubbling under the surface, a doubt or a, 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 on the part of the character, a, a, sense of, a sense of that all is not quite right. Yeah, or if you like, a foreshadowing. Yeah, as plot in plot terms, it's a foreshadowing. That's not quite, that doesn't quite capture. Yeah, well, because, because of the spark of 
Yes, yes. It's like the director's telling us. The director's telling yeah, exactly. The direct ex <laughs> exactly. <coughs> Jean Right. That's how it shot the. Uh, so we have the impression, of course, that the camera is. Yes. The, crea the, the effect that is created is the camera is circling. Literally speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The way it was shot, the camera was fixed. Right. And we were on the platform. Actually, Jimmy uh, Stewart failed the first time. And, he, uh, and the, uh, they had to stop for a day, I think, to uh, redo the scene. Right. Jean-Marie Posolides. Uh, people have spoken about uh, bedroom and hotel. Allow me a question about grave. Uh, do you think uh, the character of Madeleine would be as fascinating as it is if it were not so closely associated to Carlotta and Carlotta's death? Well, again, another hypothetical question. Um, uh, probably not, <laughs> um, uh, uh, because the the the, the Carlotta story endows, uh, of course, it's the Carlotta the Carlotta story that endows the character with this sense of mystery um, uh, and and fascination, um, and. I mean, this, your specific question is not simply the Carlotta. Well, it's it's this it's this notion of the the question of death and possession and ghostliness, etherealness. I mean, obviously, it 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 it, it gives the um, it endows Madeline's character with a, uh, her her sexuality, her being, with a very different kind of presence. Um, it endow it endows it's con it's connected to. You know what I meant. What I mentioned in the talk is the, is the aestheticization of her presence, uh, the 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 rendering of her sec etherealization of her sexuality. So, and that, of course, in turn is related to the con construction of this ideal idealization uh, of uh, this this fantasy object on on Scotty. So yes, I think the the uh, proximity of the uh, character to death is is fundamental. I think he was not only inf inspired by this. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the the source novel, uh, but also I think he was inspired in part by he always wanted to make uh, a film of J. M. Barrie's Mary Rose, and uh, who's uh, uh, right up to the end of his career. Um, and of course, the central figure in Mary Rose is a ghost. Um, who um, has this, uh, you know, enters in and out of the lives of the main characters. Um, so it was something that I think uh, capti captivated uh, Hitchcock's imagination in a, in a, in a very profound way, uh, this, this idea. Okay, so we're going to take a break for lunch here. Uh, there are food locations right here in Tresidor uh, and in the Old Union. Uh, and we're going to reconvene at about 1.30, or perhaps just a moment or two after, but plan to be back here at 1.30 for an afternoon worth of discussions. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.